I'd like to kick off again from the first chapter of Romans. I think Paul gives us a wonderful example for how we think about the gospel. As I say, it's not a simplistic, you know, Jesus died for me, which is true, but Paul (laughs) places that truth of the work of Christ within a much larger context, and I think we owe it to Christ to show that He is the ruler of all things and the creator of heaven and earth. That surely is part of the gospel, right? (laughs) That this God who is the creator has so condescended that He has come to deal with our sin and bear the blame on His own body. That to me is the power of the gospel, that when you ask, who is this King of glory? It is the God of heaven and earth. So Paul, in Romans 1, you know the classic statements about the gospel in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And verse 17, the just shall live by faith that transformed Martin Luther. Paul is giving us then, as he opens up this chapter, a way of thinking about Christian cosmology, because, you know, in verse 18, some of us wish that he hadn't said this, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven (laughs) against all godliness. Why does Paul get into the wrath of God? Well, if you put yourself in the context of the paganism in Rome, there was no notion of God as just the gods fought among themselves and established a coincidencia oppositorum. They just joined everything together, but there was no sense of ultimate justice. And so Paul wants to confront this pagan world with a God of, who is the judge. And of course, we all need that, that the world is finally a moral system. Uh, and all our moral intimations and desires are found in that reality. Even our non-Christian friends insist on taking you to court if you steal their home or whatever. There is a moral universe, and that one day the books will be opened and that justice will be done. So I think that's part of the gospel that Paul is presenting here part of the cosmology of God as the judge. And then, of course, he's the creator. And uh, Paul makes that point that, you know, men and women see God in the things that God has made and are confronted with God the creator. So as we come to those verses that I mentioned earlier, uh, we have already been introduced into a cosmology of uh, a fullness of revelation. And so when uh, Paul talks about theology as such, he's talking about God as judge, creator, and uh, puts that into that verse in 24-5, that we must worship that God rather than creation. So that's the kind of theology, positively, 
People exchange that truth for the lie. The truth is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The truth is, in Romans 1, 20, 21, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And men suppress that truth and are thus accountable. But Paul, in these verses, uses three terms. Sorry, he uses two terms three times. Exchange and given over. There are three exchanges and the three givings over. This is not theology that's just slapped down without any kind of thought. We have an intelligent mind here. These are not pesky verses or clubber texts. This is the development of a serious cosmology. And, of course, the exchange about theology is, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. In spirituality, they do the same thing. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, and they exchange the glory of, sorry, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they not only exchanged the true God for a false God, but they exchanged spirituality in the sense of idolatrous spirituality is, replaces true spirituality. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then, of course, uh, there's a further exchange, and that's the exchange in sexuality. For the woman exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. Paul opposes to that a natural theology. He says that they likewise gave up natural relationships. So Paul is proposing a natural view of sexuality as he's sort of condemning the rejection of that. So they uh, exchange the natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. What they're exchanging, of course, is the truth we see in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, the fact that God created man, male, and female, one, Genesis 1.28, Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the truth that is exchanged for the lie. So I'm suggesting to you that we have here in these verses a, a, a counter-cosmology of the truth, which includes a holistic view of who God is, what we are, what our sexuality should be. And so it's incumbent upon us to develop not simply a knowledge of how the Bible rejects homosexuality in those specific texts, but that we understand 
the whole import of the Bible in support of heterosexuality and what Paul calls natural sexuality. And so we need to look at how we should talk to our world cosmologically by putting the whole of the Bible together, not just individual texts that reject the falseness, but a much larger affirmation of the truth in a cosmology. You know, the gay Christian exegesis claims there are only six verses against homosexuality, the pesky verses and so on. But it's very interesting, there is not one verse in the entire Bible over the 3,000 years that it was written that affirms the goodness of homosexuality. Not one suggestion. Everything the Bible says is based upon Genesis 2.24 and Genesis 1.27-28. That's how it works itself out. And uh, we need to look at that. Now, I would like to propose to you a twoist view of uh, biblical cosmology. You're surprised I'm doing this, I know, but uh, I will take you by surprise, only in this sense, that I would like to suggest to you that twoism is the very essence of holiness. We all get excited about holiness, and sometimes in a wrong sense. When I grew up in Liverpool, England, we always talked about the church as the holy huddle, you know, and uh, we were the holy ones and everyone else was unholy, and it, it was a very moralistic kind of understanding, and the whole denominations have been built around a, perhaps a, a far too moralistic view of holiness. And I would like to propose to you a different way of thinking about holiness that doesn't put morality at the forefront of what it is. Now, the term holy and holiness is different than the term whole or wholeness with an H. Why do I say that? Well, because there are many people now confusing wholeness with holiness. And so you can sort of sneak in to the biblical exhortations to holiness these notions of all is oneness, which is what wholeness means. And I, I've discovered, I didn't bother to document it for this lecture, but I've discovered a number of theologians who make that disastrous identification of these two. As a matter of fact, I know there are many linguists here in this congregation, so you'll enjoy this, but wholeness with an H comes from the Greek holos. Now that term holos is the term behind Catholic. How so? 
Catholic is two Greek words, kata, according to holos, catholic, catholic. I didn't say alcoholic, I said catholic. And, and it means according to the whole, which is what the claim of the Catholic Church does, and of course what we do in, the, uh, in our uh, confessions. We, we talk about the Catholic Church, and we say, it's not the Catholic Church. Okay. It means the universal church, according to the whole. Now, holiness is very different. And I take the time to confuse you here, <laughs> because I think it's important that you catch what holiness means. It can be used in so many different ways, and with no biblical sense to it at all. The word holy comes from the Greek term hagios. So to start with, there are Greek terms behind these two English words that are very different. They're different. So you really cannot confuse them. Hagios, holy, means special. Things that are holy like holy ground or the Sabbath day. Holy ground is different than the other ground. The Sabbath as holy is different than the other days of the week. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That's where we get the term holiday, right? It's a holy day. It's that time which is so different from the rest of the year. So, you have to think of holiness as that which is special or separate, distinct. Do you see where this fits in with tourism? Tourism is the view that there are genuine and valid distinctions. And so if you can see the use of the term holy in Scripture, you've absolutely widened your understanding of what it means to affirm tourism. Because the Bible is forever making distinctions and telling us that they are good. Which is what I hope tourism means to us. So I would suggest to you then that holiness is not primarily a moral or ethical concept. It is, excuse this word, I'm overusing it, it is a cosmological term. When we say God is holy, we're not as such saying he is moral. That almost goes without saying. We are saying that he is different in his being than we are in our being. Right? So, <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> God is holy because he has a distinct being and a distinct place where he dwells. That's why Jesus calls on us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. You see, it's that idea that God is distinct from us that reminds us how holy he is. And of course, that's very much the vision that the Bible gives us of God, of his utter transcendence beyond the whole of even the visible universe. 
Think about how sophisticated this view is in our 21st century when we're just discovering certain kinds of planets now and uh, examining them. And yet, in the Bible, you have this notion that, that God is transcendent over all of this universe. Now, they didn't have the full sense that we have of the enormity of it, but they had the notion that God was not to be identified with anything in the created universe. So we're, we are being introduced, you see, to a God who is totally other, totally transcendent, totally different than we are. Now that's the kind of God I can worship. The kind of God I see in the mirror every morning, uh, I go, oh no. Um, but that kind of a God who is utterly mysterious in his being, I, I, I think that evokes from us the kind of awe that true worship requires, don't you? And it's something that just goes beyond anything in other religions. No other religion affirms this reality of who God is. That Christian song catches it, God of wonders beyond our galaxy, or all the galaxies actually. You are holy. The universe declares your majesty. You are holy. And it's interesting that God is not only holy relative to us, but he's holy in his own being. You see, we don't, we don't uh, function in this meaning of holiness as an important element in God's holiness so that God becomes dependent on us for one of his attributes, which is always the great danger, isn't it, with a, with an approach that suddenly collapses God into the universe, and then you have oneism, which is, of course, what all these mystical religions do. They collapse God into the universe, and then he is not distinct. But God is distinct, and he's distinct, you see, not simply because he's distinct from us, but in his own being, there is distinction, there is holiness, because the three persons of the Trinity are distinct from each other. And so we really derive the sense of holiness not from God's relationship to us as such, but in God himself, which of course, just a footnote here, is true also about personhood. God is not personal because he relates to us. He is personal in his very own being forever. This is an important argument against Islam, by the way, that the God of Islam is impersonal. He's alone forever. And the only way that the God of Islam can become personal is by, by creating. And there are statements in the Quran that show that God uh, swears by the earth, which the God of Israel never does. He says, I will not <laughs> swear by created things. So ultimately, the God of Islam is an idolatrous being and uh, is dependent, really, on Muhammad and human beings to be personal.
There's a lot more to be said about that, but I just thought I'd add it as a footnote that um, the, the absolute essential nature of the doctrine of the Trinity, once you start to conceive of, you know, genuine pagan religion where we find the God within, or Islam with uh, the impersonal God, the doctrine of the Trinity is essential. So God is the source of personhood and personal holiness. And we simply are called upon to reflect it in the earth. I think we can go further in our development of this cosmology in showing that as God creates, it's a work of sanctification of matter. It's a rendering holy of the matter that God works into form. You've noticed in Genesis 1 that at the end of Genesis 1, we have this beautiful functioning cosmos where things are distinguished in their rightful places because God, during that process of creation, separates the day, the day and the night, the seas and the dry land. He creates different kinds and gives them all specific individual names. In other words, he turns the original unformed matter, which can be translated chaos, into cosmos. Now, you ladies will never forget this, that the origin of cosmetics is the turning of chaos into cosmos. Turning a disorder into order. <laughs> Keep doing it. <laughs> you see, to separate things out is to make them holy. Created things in their separateness reflect in creaturely ways the holiness of God. And the ultimate and final expression of that distinction, of course, is in Genesis 1, 27-28, where God creates man male and female. He's already declared this, this universe in, with distinctions as good. But after he's finished that one, he says, very good. You know, that's the message we bring to this world, that God has created a universe of distinctions, and it's very good. I think we need confidence to be able to say that. The created cosmos is an expression of the Creator's beauty of holiness. And we're exhorted to worship the Lord in the splendor or beauty of holiness. And you see, as I suggested earlier, God's creative intelligence and His bringing distinctions to evidence is written all over the physical world, and so it must surely be part of Romans 121 when Paul says, God's qualities have been clearly seen from what he has made. Now, what do you put into that notion of God's qualities if it isn't at least distinctions 
And so it's absolutely essential to maintain in the created world an obvious expression of distinctions so that people can see behind all that the God who is distinct from the world and distinct within his own being in the three persons of the Trinity. So it is absolutely damnable when we see the operation of paganism in our world in its attempt to destroy distinctions, to erase the binary, and to cause our present culture and our children growing up to ever remember such a notion. I think we're going forward to a world where this idea of God as the holy creator of holy things is being obliterated. What kind of a culture will that produce? It's interesting, I, I wrote an article, and I should just give you a few of the basic ideas of how these gay Christians interpret Genesis 2.18. It is not good for man to be alone. Um, they argue that this is the biblical evidence to justify gay marriage because it is absolutely obnoxious in God's mind that human beings can be alone. And you get that from Genesis 2.18. It is not good for Adam to be alone. Well, in that verse, there are three key terms, alone, good, and helper. Uh, Rob Bell, on the Oprah Winfrey show, argues that in Genesis 2.18, the text means emotional loneliness. It's not good for a man to be emotionally alone. Well, I took the time to examine the 204 occasions in Hebrew where the word alone is used. And I can say with confidence, it is never used of psychological or emotional loneliness. The Bible uses the term alone to mean something as distinguished from something else. So there's something holy about it as well. Joseph eats alone and his brothers eat in another room. That's where it's used. Or the God of Israel is enthroned above the cherubim and God alone of all the kings of the earth has made the heavens and the earth. So the Bible is not telling us that Adam was suffering from emotional isolation, but that he was the only person, only human being on the face of the earth at that moment. So why is it not good? Well, it's not good because there was sin or emotional suffering. It was not good because the creational process hadn't been finished, that's all. <laughs> it was not yet complete. But when male and female are in place, then the not good disappears and everything is very good. 
In Genesis 2.18, God promises a perfectly fitted helper as a solution to this aloneness. And of course, the only possibility is Eve. Not another man or an animal, but Eve. She is the perfectly fitted helper. So this attempt to twist scripture is uh, really not without uh, usefulness at all. To solve the not good situation, God creates the very good heterosexual structure of marriage. And so the, the, the problem is simply solved in the sense that aloneness, as I said, is that creation has not been completed yet. And when it is, then God says it's very good. And it's, create, and it's completed because Adam needed somebody other than himself, not somebody the same as himself, in order to be able to realize the commandment to be fruitful and multiply according to the cosmic formula, egg plus sperm equals civilization. That's good. That's what will ensure that the world continues. And that's, of course, an affirmation of holiness, that we need two distinct people who bring what they have, which is different, in order for the world to progress. And of course, this understanding of two-ness is described in Scripture as blessed. This holy estate of matrimony, as we call it, is blessed. Genesis 1.27 is repeated in Genesis 5.2, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them. But what is this blessing? Well, it's the blessing of fruitfulness. God blessed Adam and Eve in their work of fruitfulness. Genesis 1.22, God blessed them saying, 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. So that's what's blessed as a relationship of holiness. So that's the creation narrative which affirms distinction which is good. And throughout Scripture, this idea of twoist sexuality, and I come back to this as the cosmology of the Bible, specifically in relationship to sexuality, is to be affirmed by what Paul shows in citing Genesis 2.24 in Ephesians, 3, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. You know it well. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Isn't that a beautiful statement of both holiness distinction 
and unity, and thus a beautiful statement of twoism. But then Paul goes on. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is affirming here with this notion of mystery is that in the very creation itself, prior to the fall, there is mystery. Because he's referring back to Genesis uh, 2.24, which precedes the fall. Now, often when Paul talks about mystery, he's talking about the gospel, which takes care of our fallen state. But here, he's talking about a mystery that precedes the fall and thus is finding in the creation itself a mystery to be preserved. And it, of course, is the mystery of the holiness of the male and female distinction. And so we witness about this mystery in our bodies as created elements. Thus, it's not surprising that this mystery of man and woman that Paul says is now reflected in Christ and the church is part of what is developed in the whole of Scripture. You know, in Isaiah 54, 5, the text says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. In Jeremiah 3, 20, 31, 32, The covenant I made with their fathers they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall shall your God rejoice over you. That theme you see of marriage is reflecting God's relationship to the world as a distinct, holy relationship. That's why marriage is honored according to uh, Hebrews 13.4. So scripture, as I said earlier, never once makes any positive statement about the homosexual relationship and certainly makes a number of statements that is not pleasing to God. Whereas throughout the whole of Scripture, we have this development of the mystery of God's relationship to creation and then in his relationship in redemption through Christ to the church. The very mystery is found within the male-female relationship. Scripture begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve, symbolized by their oneness and their unity together, and ends with the cosmic marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's a whole uh, development of a redemptive history. And Hosea saw this from afar when he says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. He's looking, doubtless, to that final day. That final day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will be the celebration of all the binaries, by the way. We We will be there not as divine beings, but as transformed, created beings.
I don't know how homosexuals will enjoy, if they get to heaven, will enjoy singing what the rest of us will, will be singing for eternity. You know what we'll be singing? Revelation 4, 9 through 11. With the four and twenty elders, worthy art you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you didst create all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. You see, what we'll be singing there is praise to God the Creator. And I do believe that only heterosexual believers will be able to truly sing that song. Well, we need to develop this biblical cos cosmology of tunus, of holiness. And uh, a few weeks ago, I read the words of a homosexual atheist, Matthew Paris. He reacted to the weak defeatism of the Archbishop of Dublin when the Irish overwhelmingly accepted gay marriage. They'd all been catechized in the Catholic Church and everything, and they just turned against it. But this fellow, Matthew Paris, said, as a homosexual atheist, I wince to see the philosophical mess that religious conservatives are making in their case. Is there nobody of any intellectual stature left in our English church or Roman church to frame the argument against Christianity's slide into just going with the flow of social and cultural change? Time was when there were men of the cloth who could show us moral relativists a decent fight in that eternal debate. Now there's only the emotional witness of the renting evangelicals, most of them pretty dim. So may we respond to the call of this atheist homosexual and pray that there will be many that will be raised up to speak the truth of this glorious gospel of Tunis and bring the world to face once more who is our God and how we are to worship him in our bodies and in our bodily holiness. May God bless us for that end. Thank you.